Toronto FC, a team with a new direction after an off-season makeover. It's an all-Canadian affair. Matt working against Morgan. Puts it across the mile. Yes! Marco DeMaio! That's what we expected from him! To make those rainbows in my mind when I think of you sometime and I wanna spend some time with you just the two of us. Welcome to another edition of the Two Saltitudes Podcast. I'm Dwayne Rollins here in Toronto. And Kevin Laramay is in a very busy Montreal today. Uh, we're actually recording this intro the day after we recorded most of the podcast because we had some breaking news that came out after we recorded it yesterday. So we're kind of adjusting the podcast. That's why we're a day late. Kevin, what's going on? It's, uh, wow, a lot of things going on, Dwayne. Uh, you know those meet and greet the team always have? Every team has, like, meet the fans or meet the team, meet the whatever. Well, yesterday was one, but it's always an eventful day when that happens with the Montreal Impact. And yesterday, well, it was not an exception. Uh, it seems like uh, Nick DeSantis has resigned or got let go. Well, he's out officially as probably the technical director. It's going to be interesting to see if he stays in the organization, has a different, uh, po- a different job. We'll see. But for now, NDS is out and, uh, it's going to be a very big day again today on the MFC News uh, point of view. Back in the old days of It's Called Football, we used to do them video shows. So if this was a video show, right now you'd see me doing air quotes of resigned. Yes. Well, if you watched the game against uh, Portland on Sunday, in the last 10 minutes there was one chant sang by almost half, well, all the supporters section and a lot of other sections joined in. And I think it was the straw that broke the camel's back, as we say. It's funny, the, the fans, I can remember when Mo Johnston was let go in Toronto, and uh, it was a it's startling day at the time, not to make everything about Toronto, but it had their similarities in the sense that, you know, the same kind of position being let go. Mm. Um, you know, Toronto up until that point had been a fairly positive fan experience. It was kind of turning that year. In retrospect, we didn't know what we were into for the next two years that followed. But at that time, it was a loss against D.C. United. D.C. United was one of the worst teams in the league. The entire stadium's mood just went off in the last 20 minutes, and it was bitter and angry. And I remember leaving the stadium that day, and you could tell that there was just they had to do something, and you knew it was Mo Johnson going to get fired, and that's exactly what happened. Precky went out the door with him. But, uh, uh, yeah, sometimes you can tell in the stands, and, and you're sort of suggesting that maybe that was the case uh, this past weekend. Yep, so when you listen later on to the show, to the MLS review point of, MLS review, Canadian MLS review on the show, uh, take it to consideration. It was about two hours before the bomb dropped yesterday. So, yeah. all the comments I've said about, we should think about making change to the team, well, we would foresaw what was going on, but you'll have more detail in the actual, uh, EMFC segment. Yeah, and, so we're going to do that, then we're going to talk about Nick DeSantos uh, in the middle segment here. But first, we're going to have a little more positive conversation, because yesterday the news came out that the uh, 2000 Canada Gold Cup team, the Gold Cup champions, which is really the, you know, I'm even I'm a little too young to remember 86, uh, I, I do remember it, but I was a child, um, 
Kevin is too young literally to remember it. So uh, for the 2000 Gold Cup team was really the only team that uh, that won a championship of significance for Canada uh, in our lifetime as fans. So uh, they were put into the Canada Hall of Soccer Hall of Fame yesterday, and we uh, we kind of honored them with some memories. And Kevin talked to me about my memories of that tournament and uh, just uh, what legacy of that team was. So that's going to be the first segment, and then we're going to wrap it up with the. Uh, as Kevin said, an MLS review, which happened about two hours before the Nick DeSantis uh, news. Uh, but um, it still is relevant. We talked a little bit about uh, Jada Merritt's retirement in there. Uh, TFC, kind of the, one of their most frustrating losses because it looked they played so well, but they lost anyway, and what that maybe meant. And we talked just uh, about the impacts overall of uh, woes uh, just a couple hours before they did something about it. Whether it's the right thing or not, we'll find out soon. But before we do that, let's talk about the Canadian 2000 Gold Cup champions, and we're going to go into the break with a little bit of a bumper of Richard Hastings scoring one of my favorite goals ever scored in the sport. Well, there has been rain off and on in Southern California the last few days. Nothing heavy, I don't think, but there has been moisture, so it might be slick. That was a good-looking cross when it started out, but it didn't get all the way through, and it's knocked away. And here comes Martin Nash with lots of room, and he's got Garrett Cush, and he's also got Richard Hastings, and here comes Hastings, if he can get a shot at it, and he scores for Canada! (laughs) Richard Hastings has won it for Canada, who are through to the semifinals, do you believe it? And Martin Nash with, again, the cross from the right, and found Richard Hastings, who had a great first touch, and roofed it. Unbelievable turn of events. Canada, unbeaten in nine, have just knocked off the 10th ranked country in the world. Oscar Perez is stupefied. <laughs> oh, memories. It's a lot better than 8 1, eh? Oh, well, yeah, yeah, 2 1 against that, that golden goal against Mexico was great. And the final against Colombia, 2 nothing, which is uh, where we see Colombia, where it's at today. Uh, one of the surprising country in the last World Cup. Wow, Canada already beat Colombia once. That's good to know. It, it was a very strange tournament. Yeah. For those South Korea is in the CONCACAF. Um, I know that, Gavin, you're a little on the young side to remember the 2000 Gold Cup all that well, correct? Yeah, well, I was, uh, it's what, 14 years ago. So yeah, I was 16 years old in the 2000. So, and, and you, although you followed soccer all that. Yeah. I, I played in high school. I played I in high school in Zagreb. Yeah, sorry about that. Sorry. All right. I was a little older than 16. We'll leave it at that. Um, <laughs> I remember it very well. And uh, so we'll, we'll we'll talk about the tournament a little bit right now. Um, it was an odd little run. For those that don't remember, uh, Canada won a coin flip to get into the, get into the knockout stage. Uh, it was three-team groups, as CONCACAP is like to do. And, uh, they won a game and they lost a game as they're, as they're apt to do too. Canada can never do things the easy way. Uh, Holger Osik, the, uh, the head coach at the time, uh, Holger's heroes, this team became known in the, for a very, very brief period of time following the tournament, uh, went in and he, he called, uh, tails, I believe. It might have been heads, I don't know. It was one of the two anyway. And, uh, they won and they advanced. So they got the lucky game and they got to go play Mexico and that's the goal we just heard in the bumper with Richard Hastings' golden goal. And, this was during the very brief window of time that the Golden Goal rule existed. So what we were saying just off air that one of the great things about the Golden Goal, for those who don't remember, is it sort of allowed teams like Canada to open things up in the extra time because they knew if they could just grab a goal, it was done. And it, it created a more attacking-based game. 
Um, and unfortunately, because FIFA is an incredibly conservative organization run by uh, by the bigger federations, they didn't like the fact, the bigger teams, that they were getting nicked by smaller teams by what they thought viewed as a lucky goal. To me, it was short-sighted. Maybe that's my hockey attitude coming through with, you know, we're used to here in Canada with, you know, sudden death overtime has been ingrained in our DNA from birth. Yeah. So, you know, it just seemed natural to me. And I, 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 you know, unfortunately, and this is the first piece of luck that Canada got on this run is the golden goal rule was in effect. Yeah. A lot of luck. And then the yeah, golden goal was, was, yeah, yeah. That's the first big piece of luck is they won the coin toss. It's 50 50 in that one. The second big piece of luck was the golden goal rule was in effect. And even though Mexico completely dominated them for that 90 minutes. And if you watch the clip, go out, type into to YouTube Richard Hastings Golden Goal. It'll pop up. Just write, just write Richard Hastings and the first <laughs> suggestions Golden Goal. <laughs> exactly, and this was his highlight of his career by far. Um, it, they were deep in the zone, like Mexico was attacking. It was a counter, and it was a nicely picked up uh, a little. Uh, cr- they switched the field, is what they did, and found Hastings breaking up the fullback. He almost fumbles the ball too when he gets into the box the first time. Like when he gets the box before he sets up to uh, to allow the keeper, he almost fumbles the ball. Then he takes a second to relax, but he was probably the most nervous he's ever been. He's like, "What? I want to break away against Mexico in overtime? No way." It- to yeah, to to win a match, well, to get to, to basically guarantee the two more games at that point. So it was a a phenomenal sort of a. I can always remember that. It, that was the height of the sort of the Voyagers boards, uh, being like the, the place that you had to be because half the time Canada wasn't even on TV, so you'd have to follow games on the board. Those games were on TV. Uh, you can hear Jerry Dobson's call. That was maybe his most famous. Richard Hastings wins it for Canada. Um, one of his more famous calls. So you know. That community, though, just exploded. And I don't know if the archives are still out there, but up to about four or five years ago, you could go back and read the reaction of these hardcore Voyager fans. If you read those boards today, you'll recognize some of the handles to this day. And it was just basically many people just hammering the keyboard <laughs> to respond, you know, like, bah, bah. that was kind of the reaction on the board when that happened. It was it was a great moment for those of us that, that followed this program in the 90s as closely as we did, because it's one of the great things about following Canada, and there's, there's not many, to be honest, but one of the great things is there is a very tight-knit community, and it's because we've all been through the same things, and we've all had to fight to follow the team in the same ways. Uh, not to be dismissive of those who came later, but when those of us who who came up doing this in the 90s, we really had to fight to find the coverage. So, you know, you guys are lucky today. <laughs> but Let me ask you, Dwayne, how are you, because I know you were watching that tournament really closely back then. Uh, what was your feeling after beating Mexico? Were you surprised? Were you like, wow, we can actually win it this year? What's going to be? Because it was our yeah. fourth appearance in the fifth uh, Gold Cup in the history of uh, the Gold Cup. Well, so uh, what was the feeling? The third piece of luck was that the U.S. lost. <laughs> Wow. Also in the in the quarterfinal, so all of a sudden it's a wide open bracket, and Mexico having, and U.S. are out of the two best teams of the Gold Cup all at once. And, and absolutely, I can tell you at a hundred percent that my feeling at that point was to go, "Oh my God, we're playing TNT in the finals. We could make the Gold Cup final," <laughs> and that was just absurd, even at the time. I mean, look, Canada was better; they were better placed then. Uh, they had been in the hex in the previous cycle, but that was. Uh, Still a long ways to go. Like, no one ever imagined they were going to win a tournament. So, 
when that opened up in that way, it was a lot of us sort of felt, and I can remember the boards, at the time, a lot of people sort of counting the chickens, saying, my God, we're going to, we could even win this thing. And people were going, whoa, 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 we still have to win these games. And sure enough, that Trinidad and Tobago game was one of the most startling games I can remember as a Canadian soccer fan ever. And that's saying a lot. Absolutely. And I was just reading up on it, too. Literally, Canada dominated the the awards, too, because it was, Richard Hastings was a rookie, and it was a rookie of the tournament. Fair play award for Mr. Goal scoring Jason DeVos. The MVP was obviously Craig Forrest, a goalkeeper, which stood on his head the whole tournament. But a player I forgot, a top scorer, Carlo Corazin. What happened to him? Uh, well, he sort of just went back to doing what he was doing. He was in the second division. He was in League Two in England at the time. And he just had an outstanding tournament. Uh, you know, it was like one of those, again, doing another hockey analogy, it's like one of those guys that gets hot in the playoffs and you never hear from again. It was what Carlos Corazon was. And he, I mean, he always showed up for Canada, so full respect for that. And he was around in Canada, had another great run a couple years later in the World, in the Gold Cup where they, they got to a, they won the third place game. But, but Kevin, to go back to the Trinidad game, those who didn't see it cannot understand how badly Canada played in that game. It was, they wanted desperately to let Trinidad make the final. Um, and Trinidad, keep in mind, was only a few years away from making their first World Cup. But at that time, they were they weren't really considered better than Canada. But Craig Forrest had to play one of the you know up to Tim Howard recently, maybe the best goalkeeping performance I've ever seen. Okay. He literally he stopped penalties. He was out of his head that game, and it was only because of Forrest that Canada managed to win it. But win it they did on a Corazon goal late. I think it was the 70th minute or something like that. They somehow managed to pull it out of their butt, and it was just one of those things that you just shook your head, and at that point in time, it was like, well, maybe they are going to win this damn thing. Oh, uh, so after the semifinals, what was your your thoughts going into the final against Colombia, which, even though it's not a CONCACAF team, there was three invited teams, Colombia, South Korea, and uh, TNT, no, TNT is from CONCACAF, which yeah, is yeah. one? I, I, uh, oh, Peru, it was Peru, it was Peru. Okay, yeah, and look, the first thing is, like, we understood going into that Trinidad Tobago game that we were going to qualify for the Confederations Cup with a win, and that was kind of the attention that was in the days after, was how insane it was that Canada was going to go to Japan the next nice. year, because they were. They were they were in the Confederations Cup. That's one of the two major tournaments that Canada has been in, like, major FIFA finals that Canada has been involved in. I know Confederation Cup isn't exactly a major, major final, but it is considered a yeah. FIFA final. Um and it does have the great uh, result that Canada is undefeated all time against Brazil in uh, FIFA finals. But at any rate, uh, nil nil draw against Brazil. <laughs> but uh, Ronaldinho was on that team. No, there was there was one of the famous guys who was on it, but no, not one of many else. Brazil didn't send a very big team. At any rate, um, but that that was kind of the attention that everyone was laying into because Colombia was kind of it was still close enough to the '90s and when Colombia was a big deal to, to think that. That it was going to be a hard ass to beat them, but then the the final showed up, and really Canada's only complete game. They they dominated that game from start to finish. That a goal in each half, a late goal. Uh, Jason DeVos is you know with his big bleeding head all wrapped up, scoring a goal just trickled over the line. It that is one of the iconic, it's such as there are iconic memories of Canadian soccer. But that one's oh, it. Yeah, seriously, yeah, I've I've seen memes with. This cra- screen grab of his face in that exact moment, when he hits that header, like first of all, 
he runs and jumps over that Colombian. The Colombian never saw anything. He's like, well, there's a huge Canadian on top of me. And he heads it right into the corner of the goal. And the goalkeeper is even surprised that it's that hard and he can't control it and it trickles in. Uh, it's a great moment. It gave me goofbump when I was rewatching the highlights earlier today. It was and a great I, moment. I, I've got to admit, I have watched the highlights of the gold 2000 Gold Cup final oh, probably 60 times over the last 14 years. It, it is, nice. look, we don't have much. But we do that that day. Whenever life gets you down, put the Voss back on. And it, that maybe was the most Canadian goal ever scored. <laughs> it wasn't pretty at all. A big, big defensive center, like half that, or the center back just barreling over a Latin player <laughs> and trickling it over the, over the line with blood on his face. It was where barely, he's barely crossing. But yeah, it, it was, it was awesome, obviously. And one of my favorite memories of it, and I, not a lot of people remember this, but I, I have somewhere packed away here, I have all the, the newspaper, and there's a, there's a bar in Toronto, uh, the Duke of Gloucester, uh, those here in Toronto will know very well where that is, that has in the back in this snug room, which is a little hall of fame that's been, the fans have made there of, of Canadian and TFC moments. There is the front pages of the star and the sun from that day as well. But my memory of the, the, the follow, the after fact is A, that it was on the front page of all the major papers in Canada. This was a big deal. It was like, oh my god, we won a soccer trophy. But the Toronto Sun's editorial cartoon will always stay in my head. And what it was, was a picture of a Canadian customs agent looking at this trophy and going, I don't understand. What is this? We've never had one of these come in our country before. Something along those lines. It was a joke that we never won a trophy. So, you know, it, it, it transferred into the mainstream for a couple days, and it was such a potential breakthrough from there. Unfortunately, we all know what happened. Yeah, but uh, I was I had two thoughts watching the, uh, the end of the highlights. I was like, okay. Soccer has definitely gone a long way since then. If you just watch at the quality of the production values of watching soccer game, but not just technology-wise, just like the advertisers nowadays are local companies usually, and not like uh, Spanish or international. And it's great to see as well uh, the international level of competition that has grown up in 14 years, which is a lot like North America, like the United States were a lot, not bad, but... They were not as good as today. It's gone a long way. Even Mexico looked uh, different back then. I'm not even talking about... I'm just talking about just the way they were playing tactics-wise and just the techniques as well of the players. It was a game of error, if you could say, back then. And it's great to see that, but you're right another point. Canada has disappointed when you watch a team like Colombia where it is today. It's a, it's a model we should have uh, followed. Yeah, well, I mean, easier said than done to follow yeah. that, but it's... Uh... It just did never, this is where I've always made this argument before. As great as it was, and you can tell him by my voice and memory and how fun it was at the time. I mean, you know, it's always fun to win, right? And even though I can intellectually understand that, that there was a hell of a lot of luck that went into that run, probably more luck than was ever sustainable. Well, yeah. there's no probably, but it was more luck than was sustainable. We clearly saw that by the evidence that followed, but even at the time, you should have been able to see it. You're not going to win too many tournaments that you had to use a coin flip to get into the knockout stage. Um, but it, it really gave a false, it was a false dawn of Canadian soccer for a lot of people. And if you look at the problems that we have today, a lot of them stem from what was happening in the, around that time at the grassroots level. And I have often thought that that combined with something that happened on the women's side of the game in, in the 2003 
uh, World Cup where Canada made a semifinal, and again, it was based on a lot of luck, and basically one fluky goal against China in a quarterfinal bolted them into a semifinal of a World Cup back when the women's game had even less competition than it does now, which is hard to believe, but... Those two factors so closely together at a time when things were going to crap at the grassroots and there were people screaming from the rooftops about what had to happen, in body, in, like it embattled, it, it, it sort of created the situation where those in charge refused to believe there was a problem. And they had these two great glaring examples to point to. See, there's no problem here. But the problem, of course, to have that not, thinking Not just that, though. They had a, a result as well to be, see, we were right all along. And you should yeah. do what we keep on saying. And exactly. But, you know, of course, the, the faulty thinking in that is that those results, A, were lucky. <laughs> Not that luck is sometimes is a big part of sport. And, and those of us who follow sport refuse and don't like to acknowledge that sometimes. But it is. It's oh, a huge is. part of sport. And it's kind of what makes sport fun. I mean, if it just the best team won every t- day, we'd just, like, play statomatic baseball with our dice or something, right? Yeah. You know, like the old board games. But that's not how sport works. You want to watch that luck, and that's part of it. But not acknowledging the lucky aspect of that, and also not acknowledging that what's happening in the now has nothing to do with what's happening. Like, what's happening now at the elite level has nothing to do with what's happening now at the at the grassroots level. I make that argument all the time when people say that Canadian soccer is hopeless moving forward based on 8-1 and so on, is that that's irrelevant to what happens 10 years from now. It's irrelevant to how good Canada will be if they were to host the 2026 World Cup. We can move forward and don't have to worry about the past. But what isn't irrelevant to right now is what was happening then because it's those players that were being developed then that are the core of our elite squad is. And, and that core is awfully damn thin, as we know, because they weren't creating any kind of development platform at the time. And these two results, and I, I bring the women's result as equal as that because we we um, have problems on the one side of it too and I just don't want to acknowledge and add the London result into it which also had a lot of luck in it guys and I've made that argument many times before and been blasted for it um, you just don't want to have people get complacent and that's I think what was happening at the time there was a lot of complacency and it had a lot to do with this result but that's to take nothing away from the accomplishment of those players on the day it's just it's a criticism of the CSA at the time Oh, absolutely. And not just that, uh, the world of, f- of football changed in about that era. That's when uh, specialized tactics and really came into play in those international competitions. And Canada was never able to repeat either the results or even the small achievement coming out of any group stage of tournaments they've been in. So it would be fun to, uh, hopefully we're on the right path now. But at least uh, just realizing that there's a not necessarily a problem, but there's a, an evolution needed. Uh, it's about time, I think. Yeah, results results can change programs. It's like this, the adage is goals change games. Results change programs too. And you know, if you look at the U.S. side of things, a lot of them point to a result that happened in 1988 um, of them beating Canada actually, in a uh, Olympic qualifier to qualify for the Seoul Games. And at that time, Canada had been consistently better than the U.S. for a generation. And it was that result, if you read a big American voices, they will point to that result as being the confidence boost that they had to move forward and to continue on the pathway that they were doing at that time, which ultimately led to them uh, nailing the 94 bid and trading the league and doing all those right things they needed to do to move to the next level. But it all that result at that time was used positively to spearhead and continued to spearhead the changes that were needed. Unfortunately, the positive result we got in 2000 was used 
to put a roadblock up against progressive voices that weren't really heard for at least a decade later. They have been heard now. There are progressive voices in Canadian soccer that are more in control than the regressive voices. And I think that this is a message that I stress every time I can because we need to keep moving forward. And we almost need something like the U.S. 1988 result. We need something to spearhead us forward again. Actually, I think the result was in 87. It was for the 88 Olympics, but at any rate. We need one of those results. Yeah, we we need something to give us confidence to to allow us to point to now and make sure that we use it positively. And I don't know where it's going to come from. Um, Maybe an Olympic qualifier. I always point to those Olympic qualifiers as being a really good opportunity because there are less countries that have legitimate programs. There's a little more luck involved in that short tournament. If we could just maybe catch a little break in a tournament like that, maybe that can be the thing that we can point to and get the men into into Rio uh, two years later than we wanted. But that that we need something like that. I think that at this point in their development, we need a little bit of luck. We need another break so that we're not talking about the 2000 Gold Cup. Well, we always are going to talk about it because it was a nice result, but we're not talking about it as the only thing we've ever had but, in our memory 20 years from now. But for now, they are inducted into the Canadian Soccer Hall of Fame. And they fully deserve that induction, just as they fully deserve that win against Colombia. Absolutely. And quickly, before we go to break and wrap up our MLS, we'll do the rest of the of the people that were inducted. Uh, they have a pioneer category, which was a gentleman <laughs> by the name of uh, Harry uh, Manson, who's from the late 1800s. Uh, he oh, was yeah. a native. He was a native. Uh, you can look up his accomplishments at that time. Um, he, he just accomplished a lot in the late 1800s for the native community in the, in the sport. Uh, Carmen uh, Marchettino, 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 sorry, it's from the 70s, and it's a guy that predates me a little bit. He was on the Metro's Croatia team, uh, won the uh, the soccer ball, the last Toronto Soccer League One championship has ever happened, 1976. Metro's Croatia there. He's also been inducted. Two women, Isabel Monroe, and Jerry Donnelly, who are from the early women's teams, um, late 90s, mid to late 90s. That's, that's their era back when, uh, there were, you know, Canada was, uh, one of the initial pioneering countries in women's football, uh, in North America. So, uh, they, they were recognized for their accomplishments as well. Absolutely. Kevin? And then, what are the recognizable names today from that team, Dwayne, that we can, that we can point out? I mean, Jimmy Brennan was on that team. Uh, a lot of people forget that the young Dero was on that team. He didn't play a lot. Uh, but that was one when he was first breaking into the national team uh, setup, and uh, he would be the only remaining connection to the 2000 Gold Cup team. Although I'm not sure, I suspect that he uh, in the friendly and in against Jamaica here in Toronto this uh, fall might be D Rose testimonial as a national team member. But that's that's another story altogether. Um, you know, there's just a lot of guys in there, and it was really a team concept. And at the time, those guys they were recognizable to all of us. So you know, I don't know. Is there anyone that jumps out looking at the roster to you? Jason DeVos, former Montreal impact player with that header of a goal in the final in the 40, uh, 45th minute. Jeff Clark, who drew the penalty in that game in the second half. And who can't forget Craig Forrest, who was probably one of the best keepers ever in that performance in that day. And uh, Steve Nash's little brother. Martin, <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot of great names. And look, if you're new to following this, uh, Google it. Have a, have a watch. It, it's worth watching. It's funny just to see the jerseys. Oh, you know, the pop-ups are still very 90s or, well, it was only 2000, so, and it was very early in 2002. It was like February the tournament took place at that time. So a lot of fun, uh, late 90s kind of styles jumping out at you. Uh, good times. Uh, at least we can say 
Well, I guess tactic depends how you define a century, but uh, I, I'm preferring to define the century as when the two started. So at least we can say we won a major title this century, right, Kevin? Yeah, absolutely. It's great. <laughs> the Canadian program might be a century old, but at least we've won one international trophy. There you go, and we won the Olympics, uh, even though there were only three country or three teams in it uh, in the early 1900s. So once every hundred years, that clock will strike midnight for Canada in, in soccer. So we'll see, we'll see where we are in the year 2100. Um, Kevin, on that note, on that sad note, <laughs> we're going to take a quick break and come back and break down the MFC breaking news that happened last night and today. Thanks for listening to the Two Solid Dudes MLS Podcast with Dwayne Rollins and Kevin Larme on Canadian Soccer News. If you want to reach Dwayne and Kevin, email twosolidnewspodcast at gmail.com. Twitter, Two Solid Dudes Pod. Go like our page on Facebook. iTunes, rate and review. Now back to the show. And we're back. Uh, this is Wednesday. Yesterday was Tuesday, and that's when we were taping that. So uh, just so you know if there's any change in audio and all that sort of stuff, that's what's going on. But uh, we wanted to break down the NDS era and uh, Montreal uh, and, and what it means for, for fans like Kevin, for people that have followed the team like Kevin. Um, I think before we get into the now, we should talk about the then. And uh, Nick Santos has been involved with the impact in one way or another, with the exception of maybe a year since 1992, correct? Yep, even before it was the impact, when it was a Supra. Yeah, and I think we shouldn't ignore that part of it. So just tell people that aren't familiar with uh, with his career and his relationship with Joey Saputo, just sort of what he meant to the to the Montreal Soccer Organization, whatever its name was through the years prior to MLS. Uh, son-in-law, if I'm not mistaken, of Joey Saputo's. But uh, he's been a defender. His number is not retired officially, but nobody has worn number four since he retired in 2004. And he's been involved as a coach and then as a technical director or general manager in North American term with the impact ever since. So from 2004 to uh, even in 2011, he was a coach after the Santos uh, left or got told to leave. A little bit like this, this Santos himself. But... Uh, his legacy was pretty good in the second division, Dwayne. He had uh, two titles as technical director or coach. He even was able to uh, get some good talent, sell players, was able to do a good job for a second division team. The Impact had a bigger budget and infrastructures than probably almost every other NASL team, with a couple of exceptions. You've talked about the Whitecaps and like the Rhinos and the big NASL team back then. But uh, the impact was so good with the infrastructures that it could uh, counterbalance the errors that could be made with the recruiting. And you had more chances to – there's a lot more player pool for a second, third division that can do the job than for a first division team. And eventually, I think that's the straw to bring the camels back again, to use that expression, that uh, finally, not the lack of – talent, but confidence, but just a lack of sheer experience of that level of of uh, talent searching, talent recruiting. It's a full-time career to do that, to be able to do this. And at that level, your small lack of, uh, what's the best word to say? I don't, because the guy's not incompetent. The guy was did a decent job, but eventually your small deficiencies catch up to you 
And when you're passionate sometimes, a little too passionate, it can hurt yourself as well. But uh, for his uh, NASL career and everything he did before that, don't forget he had a 20-plus year career with the Impact uh, in the second division. I still think he's a Hall of Famer of the Impact. He's in a Wall of Fame, whatever you want to call it. It's unofficial. But it, he still had a great career. And I don't want this last couple years affect the beginning of that legacy. Yeah, and look, as we've said many times, when we talk about Joy Saputo, and they're kind of hand-in-hand hand when you have mm-hmm. these conversations, you can't ignore what he did to, to, to keep soccer alive, basically, professional soccer alive in Montreal. Uh, I remember when the team was playing at the Bell Center in whatever it was called, the A-League or something like that, indoors, and there was summers where there was no outdoor for the impact, and the Joey Saputo and Nick DeSantis kept the brand and the team alive in Montreal that time. So they deserve a lot of credit, and he does as well, Nick DeSantis, for that. And you had some championships. Uh, of course, 2008 would probably be the... Yeah, nine. The nine, the CCL runs there. Uh, that would be probably the highlight, I would suspect, uh, of his time uh, as a manager. That one, the 2004 championship was a more festive as well, because it was a second division growing and getting finally noticed and getting a following fan base since then. And the Ultras came in 2002, and 2004 was the first championship with a supporters culture following it. So it was growing, growing back then. It was a lot of a positive vibe. And 2004, for me, always will be a special moment. 2009 as well was the last uh, championship the Impact had. And uh, since then, I don't want to say it's gone, <laughs> it's gone down, but uh, a lot of things have happened since then. But uh, 2004 for me has a special flavor. And, and again, and this is part of it, and I think real quickly before we go out of this, people get confused when they're not from Montreal because um, the Santos, who's uh, <laughs> now in Ottawa, was deeply involved with the organization too, and he's very popular. This is DeSantis, so they, it gets very confusing, but there's two different men we're talking about here, folks, just, just to be clear. Um, MDS and uh, NDS uh, are the, the two that we'll refer to, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll move away from there. Here's, that's uh, Some people are speculating that... Uh, that uh, Joy might be looking towards Ottawa to, to replace him at some point. But oh, I, that's uh, no, that's not going to happen. You don't think so? No, yeah. never again. I think there's too too much too much water there. Uh, I think not enough water has gone into the, under the bridge for that to happen. It would take uh, on both sides of that of that. I think it would take a lot of things to happen. The way the Santos left, or Mark, the way he left, and the way the impact finished that relationship probably was not the best. And it's probably on the both parties, so all good for everyone, and they'll continue to move on. But I think that it's not even sure that the Klopas will still be the coach after today. There's all rumblings and rumors going on. For sure, Klopas is going to stay. And Klopas, we forget, before he was a coach, he was the technical director for Chicago for about five years before he became their coach. And a lot of people would make the argument that he was a better technical director than he was a, a coach. So can be that my, hard, I, but yes, I would make that argument as well. Yeah, and I've read some um, some reaction amongst the the Impact Twitterverse that sort of are are kind of frustrated at Clopas, and when it sort of came out last night early, the speculation was that Clopas would be gone. There were some people that were excited about that. Uh, then he was at the meet and greet, and it's kind of hard to imagine that he would be at a meet and greet and then fired less than 24 hours later. I mean, that's that isn't completely unheard of in the world of sports, but it would be pretty crappy and not exactly the best thing that they could do. So I, I don't think he's going anywhere today. In fact, he might get a bit of a promotion. 
Um, so when we talk about the legacy of Nick DeSantis in this uh, Division Two or NASL and the A-League before that, he had a great legacy, a great great transfer. He, did. he brought Camara, which Camara had a great season in NASL before. You know, he brought good players for the impact in the Division Two. But unfortunately, he leaves the legacy in Division One with a couple moves that were red flags to me. The re-signing of Nelson Rivas too many times, twice too many to be honest. To be mm-hmm. honest, Adrian Lopez, the the continuous string of injuries that you know it happened once, it's possible twice, eh, but fool me three times, shame on me. You know that expression, and I yeah. think that's what happened. And eventually, mm-hmm. they had no choice but to come to part ways. I think from an outside perspective and what I've rallied against when it comes to the impact, and I know people think that I'm some kind of troll from Toronto, but the truth is I actually have no ill will to the impact and never have, um, is that he never fully understood or had the same type of networking within the American system that he had overseas. And in D2, as you just said a few minutes ago, you can make some more mistakes and it's easier to fill out the type of mid-level talent that's required in that league than it is in MLS. You cannot succeed in MLS if you screw up your domestic side of things. And, and domestic side in this particular context means the Americans and the Canadians combined. And I don't know if the impact ever got that right. Those, those mid-level players. And that to me always spoke to their lack of contacts within the NCAA game, within just the, the, they sort of uh, rubbed some people the wrong way in D2 yeah. down there, too. I, I think you just nailed it. They rubbed people the wrong way when they came in in 2011, 2012. When you come in thinking you know better, usually you always, that's the way it ends up. Yeah, and I think that they would, uh, if the Green Club is in as the TD, that would really speak to that kind of those lack of relationships and they can start to repair them. And I, I think, again, to bring it back to the experience I'm more familiar with here in Toronto, we've seen Toronto turn things around a little bit by trying to repair those relationships and trying to integrate themselves more with the system that they're playing in. And, uh, you know, I'm not, this isn't a Canadian-American conversation here, to be clear. It's a, it's a, what Matt works in MLS conversation. And, you know, in Toronto with Bezbachenko came in, and he had those contacts in MLS, and they started to mend those fences and sort of repair those, da- those damaged relationships that were truly damaged in the past. That's when you started to see Toronto begin to turn around this year. And I think that that's, from my outside perspective, what Montreal needs to do. So I don't necessarily think that the worst – I think Colpus would be a good hire at the TD level, and I think maybe if they hire him at the TD level for the rest of this year, you might see him step away from the coaching role anyway. Yeah, and Bielo's taking more and more space anyways behind the bench or in the dugout, so – I don't, I wouldn't be surprised if Biello takes a, a bit more responsibilities as a coach. He's been groomed to do that anyways for the past couple of years. And it's all, was always in the stars to see Biello as an eventual manager for the Montreal Impact. So I wouldn't be surprised if next year that's the new infrastructure that's official to have Klopas as the new technical director and that Biello in charge of actually directing the first team. Yeah. And- and a couple of news came out as well yesterday during before the meeting greet that were lost in the shuffle, Dwayne, as well. Oh, yeah, the trade. Yeah, you want to talk about that quick? Yeah, Dilla Duca. Well, Senna Nyasi has gone to uh, Chicago for Dilla Duca. And it's, it tells a lot about now Frank Klopas. It's like he finally got the go away. Okay, do what you want. First thing he does, Nyasi has gone. Dilla Duca's in. Uh, more attacking, uh, central attacking midfielder, you could say. And it's going to be more useful for the impact than Senna Nyasi. Who, there's a couple of Sananayasis now with the impact. If you talk about Issei, Sana, same type of player, but maybe more all around or like Issei. So we didn't really need Nayasi and he's injury prone. And, uh, 
he did not get along with everybody lately. So it wasn't reason why he's gone. So Dilduka, we'll see what he can do. And he Klopas knows him a lot. Yeah, and that clearly was a Klopas move in our first hint of, the, of what was going on that day. Yep. Um, a couple of quick questions, and then I want to talk about uh, Joey a little bit, if I could. Um, do you think that this will be enough to re-energize the, the Montreal fan base for the rest of this year, or is it really just going to be a slog until you can get to the new season? Uh, if I count on social media, right now it re-energized everybody. I think everybody was just waiting for that move. Uh, everyone's been realizing that the actual, uh, n- not the mistake, but the actual uh, one thing that needed to change for the impact, to not to get better, but to, you have to admit that there's a problem to start with. And that's where the fans were, that's where the supporters were. There was only one thing that would satisfy them. And I think that it happened. And right now we'll see maybe... Uh, the light at the end of the tunnel, or we'll see maybe some moves or maybe a more positive outlook from the fans and maybe a little bit more patience from the fans as well. Because there's one thing that we talked off air, it's important to notice. A couple of years ago, Joey Saputo said many times that DeSantis will never be fired. He's there. It's like he was unaccountable. It was like there was no accountability towards his moves or his mistakes. And in the world of sports, just the thought of your job being on the line when you do a bad decision is makes you second guess yourself and makes you think about long and hard. And maybe the lack of accountability just by being a point of view gave the fans less patience with Nick DeSantis. And there was a groan in the supporters culture for the last year and a half, Dwayne, uh, because of that reason, because the fans were not happy with the acquisitions. And to be honest, you're looking at the last 18 months, the acquisitions of Montreal Impact made, maybe one or two exceptions aside, Jack Mack aside probably that's it, all the moves were not been that great and I think that's was the popular groan and when the fans want something you can wait all you want, you can do whatever you like, but when they're that determined as they were right now uh, sometimes you have no choice but to listen to them and let's face facts the, the Jack Mack move was for a trade for a player that a lot of people at the time thought shouldn't have been drafted and that draft pick is on the, the sporting director's head, and you wonder how much Clopas have had to do with the trade too, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. It, it brings a different uh, point of view in all the acquisitions they did this season. Because some of them worked, some of them didn't. It's wondering who made what transition. It, it's very much, it seems to me, very much to be your Mo Johnston moment. And, uh, you know, if I think back at that time, it really did re-energize a... a fading TFC fan base. Now, unfortunately, the mistakes they made uh, in the next two years that followed the Mo Johnson firing made Mo Johnson look like the most brilliant manager in the history of MLS. So it kind of soured things even further to a point that you it was, you know needed something bloody big to, to recover from. Yeah, it was a painful era. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. But uh, that said, I mean, there's a lot of equations. There's a lot, you know, a man that was sort of seemed to be entrenched that a lot of supporters could see a lot of problems with and were screaming from the rooftops that needed to make some changes. You had seemed to have a management that was deaf to those that suddenly changed. So I'm going to move this to the end of the conversation and talk a little bit about Joey Saputo and wondering whether this move and removing a family member, a man who's been a friend, who's been part of that organization, who in the past he said was untouchable, maybe this is an illustration of Joey finally understanding what it takes to be an effective owner in Major League Soccer, and it's not just passion. It has to be passion coupled with intelligence. 
I think you're absolutely right on that. And there's a great article in French, but you can always Google Translate if you want to read it and you only read English. Uh, it's uh, by Martuga, and it's on the website called La 90 Minute, the 90th Minute.com in French. And it's a great article by saying, if Joey Saputo really wants to uh, write the, the ship and write the situation, he needs, first of all, to admit that he needs help. And I think that it just started. And who better than Klopas, who's seen... That hasn't seen it all, but I've seen a lot of things happen in Major League Soccer over the last 20 years. And you already had him in your ranks. Why not ask him? And I think that's what happened. And the way the button language of the D2 yesterday at the meet and greet, and there's a lot of videos, and Richard Lajean was there as well, who is the vice president of the team. And uh, basically, uh, he's in charge of the team. Joseph is the owner. Um, Richard Lajean does all the... Um, administrative and all the paperwork and that side of the business. Well, the body language of Klopas and Joey Saputo were really similar yesterday. It seemed they were, they spent the whole last couple of days together trying to find a solution and just trying to pinpoint the problems. And I think that eventually they came into the same agreement and it's the same point of view. And I think that's what we're seeing. A Klopas can be a good asset if you use it correctly in your uh, infrastructures and maybe him have more technical director and less of a coach is the way going forward. And there was a total different vibe from Klopas that I've seen last night than the, almost the six months prior to that. And, and as I've said a couple of times now, there are a lot of analogies between uh, what TFC went through and what the impact are going through today. Uh, replace Joey Saputo's name with MLSE and, and put in this face, figuring it out. MLSE figured out that they didn't know everything and they, move to people who they, they trusted and then that they could look to, to to guide them. And once they were guided, they started to improve to the point that they now look like they may be able to fully fulfill their potential and the impact as well. If they start to move and are guided and accept that guidance could fulfill that potential too. I truly believe that the Canadian teams all have the potential to be amongst the top teams in MLS year in, year out. They are the, one of the better supported teams, all three of them, and they are some of the more wealthy teams, all three of them, their sponsorship, everything else, the the potential is there. It just needs to be g- harnessed and and fully realized for uh, that that potential to grow. And I think maybe today's move might be a great step um, in the history of Montreal soccer. I do hope. Uh, last thought, Kevin, that uh, that maybe once the frustration of the last year and a bit uh, goes away, that. Um, that NDS might be one day, uh, his name might be sung by the UMO2 again in a joyful way for what he's accomplished in the past and a forgetful way for what happened in the last couple of years. The day that happens, I think all the fences will be mended and positivity will run through it. And I think that's the one thing uh, we overshadow. It's just being positive sometimes in a world today can bring a lot of good and a lot of Great stuff can happen by thinking the future will be brighter. And what better way to start that than today? Admit your wrongs. Everybody did wrong. Everybody went overboard. First of all, a whole crowd chatting NDS out, it was a little too much. But, you know, on both sides, because uh, there was a lot of history between the fans and NDS, people screaming at each other, close to fights, and stuff like that happened before. So when all the fences will be mended, everybody will be happy going forward, as long as as soon as everybody sings Kumbaya, I see positive things happening for everyone. And I'm not even saying this in a jokey way. I truly believe it. In the world of sports, the difference between winning and losing is so small, so thin, that sometimes just 
being happy and thinking about positive thinking be enough to cross that line. And we would hate to ignore the D2 past. Uh, I think that uh, that's a valuable thing that should never be forgotten. So hopefully that number will get hung up uh, in Statsaputo at some point and uh, everyone can move on and, and be happier for it. Uh, I think with that, we'll call it quits on this segment. We'll go back to the pre-recorded segment that we did yesterday, which, uh, as Kevin said before, will be a couple hours before this news broke. So keep that in mind when listening to it. And we'll be right back. Hi, this is Dwayne Rollins of the Two Solitudes podcast. Uh, doing this podcast, it's a labor of love for Kevin and I, but it's not a free labor of love. There are costs associated with doing it, costs with our time, with hosting, with so on and so forth. As such, for this month only, we're doing a fundraiser to try and raise a little bit of money to keep this podcast going and, and improve it to maybe two times a week permanently. If you'd like to help us with that, you can do so the following ways. You can send an EMT transfer to csndonation at gmail.com. You can support us through PayPal at dgrollins at gmail.com. That's, that's D-G-R-O-L-L-I-N-S. Thank you, and we really appreciate it. And we're back to talk about the MLS in review. Uh, we have not a very happy time to talk no. about in Montreal. Uh, not great crowds, not great rea- great re- results. Uh, Kevin, <laughs> not great results at all, Dwayne, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they got off to a hot start against Portland, but uh, didn't sustain it to the whole game. What's wrong? I mean, we talk about this every week, and I understand how frustrating it is because I've dealt with it in Toronto for three straight years, and it's, it can become incredibly, like, just deflating to constantly talk about what's wrong with a team. But, I mean, that's the question. I have to ask every week, is there any sign that the Impact are going to turn this around? Uh, no. Well, maybe a game here and there, but it'll never be able, in my opinion, like uh, Sibeti and other journalists said all week, and I agree with them. That they won't be able to put a couple of wins together to go on a string of great result to climb up the table. I won't think they will be able to pull that off. One or two teams usually always do it in the second half of the season. And right now, Montreal could be a candidate, but I don't see it happening. And there's a couple of negative points coming on. First of all, there were two games for the Montreal Impact this week. Thursday, they lost 3-1. And Sunday, they lost 3-2. And for some reason, the backup goalkeeper, well, he used to be backup and now apparently he's got the winning job, even though uh, Montreal got four loss in a row, and he goal the last three, three defeats, and he's still keeping, and he did not look great, did not look bad either, but did not look really better than Perkins. Uh, it's the def- defense, it's not that they, they, they have a lack of consistency, a lack of focus for like five minutes at a time, it happens two, three times a game. And it always costs one or two goals or a penalty, and it finishes 3-1 and 3-2. So the back line, is it an experience? Is it just, do they need reinforcements there, or is this just a matter of growing pains right now? I think it's trying to put people that won't have any chemistry together and don't, and always trying to find some, but always trying a new pair almost all the time. And you mix and match at the, the beginning of the season defense, a lot of young Players were from the own ground one, the Wimat, the Lefebvre, uh, even the Tissot. And now Tissot's in the midfield, which he did good. He scored a goal against uh, Portland, and he had a great pass uh, before to Map when Map crossed it to Romero when Romero scored the first goal at the 13th minute. But uh, Tissot's 
actually, I think he's better in, better in the midfield. There's less pressure, less defensive pressure on him to like do a mistake and more a little bit more going forward, which is great for Tiso. But going back to the back line, it's a mix of not inexperience, but the inexperience together. There's no chemistry, but it seems like there's not a will to have chemistry. It seems like it's trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. At this point in time, are, are, is the focus on Montreal like a fear that you might uh, approach the uh, the bad results of TFC season-wise? Is that what you're chasing, to make sure that you don't finish with the worst record in Canadian history? It hasn't been a thought, but now that you mention it, maybe. Sure, it could be a motivation factor. But uh, there's many rumblings from the locker room, from people, from even cryptic uh, tweets of certain players on on their timeline, you can always check that out. There's many different players with their uh, tweets you can say. But it doesn't seem to be a happy place right now. It, it would be uh, obvious that it's not after four straight defeats, after two good results in a week and then four defeats in a row, which destroyed all the positive that were made. But I don't want to blame the coach, but I have to blame the coach Wayne, for that. The changing information, the lack of consistency on the pitch of the same players playing together... He's literally moving away players. I know they lost Bernadello, and it hurt more than people thought it would. But to be honest, it, it looks like we're just gonna, we, they're just gonna, uh, wing it until the CCL starts it. That's what it seems from an outside point of view right now. I guess, uh, for the record, 23 points is the, uh, the record that you're chasing, so to speak. Well, we're you... stuck at 14 for three weeks, right? So, so uh, I, you would think that Montreal will get more than the 23 points. That's the 2012, and we all remember TFC 2012. Although here in Toronto, we've tried to ram our head against walls until we forget. But uh, yeah, uh, I think it's almost that time. But to be honest, uh, I doubt a couple decisions the coach have made, and it's fair game to to say it at this point. And there's probably not going to be a coaching change, but the coach was suspended on. Um, against Portland uh, for a, a reaction he did against Real Salt Lake. He yelled at the referee. The referee did not like him. They suspended after the fact. And to be honest, the coach was not there and didn't change anything. The formation looked very different to what we were used to with Felipe a little bit more a little back. Tiso up uh, in the middle. And uh, I'm... It seems like it just won't work. It seems like every player is an individual and there's no collectivity right now. There's no unit. There's no unity at all, at the all. Fear, the fear I would have as, a, as an impact supporter would, would be, I mean, we all know and we've belabored to death the impact's uh, tendency to, to flip coaches and to not have consistent turnover. But, you know, if Clopas is fighting for his job already, then maybe he's not doing the right thing for the long-term benefit of the club. Maybe the long-term benefit of the club is to look at some of your academy kids, to get more younger minutes in there, to to maybe make hard decisions on your veteran players, and he may not do that if he feels that he needs to get, you know, above 23 points or whatever the case may be to save his job. Is that something you fear? Maybe that would explain the Bush, why Bush, Evan Bush, the goalkeeper, playing more right now. He used to only play in the Champions League and the CONCACAF and Canadian Championship. But to be honest, it seems like the players he has at his disposal doesn't fit the type of soccer he wants to implement. And he just doesn't know how to use those players because he probably did not even want him to begin with. And he's supposed to be the one that decides to 
cool to, he has his, more than his say. He's soccer operation director as well as being the manager of this club. And the player he brought, it seems he doesn't know what to do with it. So who's to blame? I don't know. It could be NDS. It could be Frank Lopez. To be honest, they're not playing the game. The players are. And the players are not doing nothing to be mentioned in the last four weeks. Three weeks, sorry, the last four games. And unfortunately, as we saw with that crowd in Portland, there, it, I mean, there was a Portland journalist, I think it was, that was mentioning that there were more Portland fans in the one section and there were Montreal fans in the section immediately beside them. And, uh, you know, when you consider the Portland well, street. Well, to be fair, that was the away supporters section. So for sure yeah. there's going to be the empty seats because it's the away supporters section and it's really far team. So there's always like a handful of people. Sure. Still. Yeah, Not a but, no, but there was like, they said it was 14,000 people, but it's for sure it was below that. And that's the crowds we were seeing in Toronto at the end of last year. Um, yeah. that, you know, people, the TFC fans, for their credit or discredit, depending on your perspective, stuck with that team far longer than most fans would. Uh, however, by the time two straight years of just horrific soccer ended at the end of last year, I mean, they, they got that win against Montreal to get them to 29 points instead of 26 last year, 23 the year before. I mean, that's the first time in MLS history that a team had got below 30 points two straight seasons. Uh, TFC legitimately was the worst two-year stretch in MLS history for the last two years, and you saw it in the in the crowd. You can't expect crowds to show up. But, you oh, know. for sure, and I, I expect that that's going to continue to happen, especially now. You all know the Montreal's how the Montreal crowd is, and the media, especially now, the Canadians are going to start practicing very soon. So they're going to talk about that on the media and those sports shows and all the talk shows and even on the uh, the podcast. Not ours, but other podcasts will be talking about hockey more than soccer. But unfortunately, if they don't grab that attention right now with a good string of wins or results or just potential, then uh, I see very, I see doom and gloom. And it can't be good financially for the team if they get to like to a ten or twelve thousand average. They weren't better than that in the NASL. So. The Montreal need to refine its identity, Dwayne. And I think uh, I have a theory about that. And I think you will agree with it with the way you think about soccer. I think it, it reminds me of the Canada res- false results. With the first two seasons Montreal had in the Major League Soccer were so-so. They were not that bad. Like sixth in the first season, barely make the play- miss the playoff. And make the playoff even though you lose in a bad result in the first play-in round. It was still a decent uh, expansion year and decent second year. But it was skewed result with uh, DP players. With uh, uh, there was the one thing they did not do is build the team consistently and have an identity of play that can carry over to uh, a change of roster because the roster moves from evolves from season to season, and you need an identity to carry the type of play from roster to roster. Otherwise, it's always a, you start to like a, with a blank page every time. And that's how it seems for the Montreal Impact. It seems yeah. as though we're starting over and over and over and over, and you can never really get far when you don't really have an identity of type of play you want to actually execute on the pitch. The Impact, I think, were blinded by one full, complete season of Marco Devaio. Yep. And that was spread over two years, the second half of his first season and the first half of the second season. He had a phenomenal stretch, and that really... Uh, was a big band-aid that, that hit a lot of flaws in the Impact's roster. And, you know, and it's hard for me in Toronto to get taken seriously by people in Montreal when I point that out. But no, sure. I think history has proven that at least I might have been somewhat on target with that. Is there yeah, any- yeah, absolutely. Look objectively, too. It's not because we're not happy that they're losing that you have to 
hate everybody that says they're, that they're not good. They're not good. You have to figure out why or how it happened and trying to correct it moving forward. And you don't do that by just saying, oh, you guys, it's because you hate us that you're saying we're bad. No, look objectively at your team as a fan and try to uh, think of what you can do. And last question is a bit of a segue question. Is there any excitement over the uh, 401-20 derby? Not anymore. I don't have any expectation for that game. I just hope we don't get trashed. We always keep saying we. I never catch myself. But I, the, the fans of the Montreal Impact are just probably just worried not to lose too much against Toronto. But they're just happy that Toronto's not on a good run as well. So it's a, the battle of the non-playoff team for now. Yeah, the um, you'll be happy to or happy to know that the the traveling crowd has been a little bit dulled because apparently there's a concert. <clears throat> sorry, apparently there's a concert there in Montreal this weekend, which is driving uh, hotel rates up through the roof. Oh, okay. uh, so so it's a bit of a, a, a hard for a lot of the Toronto fans, but there's still going to be a significant traveling uh, force there for the long weekend. And we'll uh, see at the end of October too if there's a lot of Montreal travelers, but it's not a big success to be honest. Don't expect the same type of crowd that was. Uh, at the Big O, there was almost 2,500 people from Toronto last year in that yeah. game. I don't expect 2,500 people from Montreal. I would be surprised if there's a 1,000 people. And the 1,000 is still a big crowd, and I know that they have actually extended the amount of tickets that they're willing to sell <clears throat> to uh, to the Impact fans for that game. So we will see how that works. And it's always fun to do a road trip even when your team is not very good, but we'll see it's how maybe much. maybe the only fun you'll have. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, i got to admit, from a Toronto perspective, uh, Putting Montreal on the brink of missing the playoffs last year was one of the very few highlights of an otherwise bleak year. So, uh, you know, it could be, uh, that could be the situation there. If uh, the TFC can't get back on a winning track, maybe they're fighting for a playoff spot on their last game and maybe the Montreal fans will want to come in and play spoiler. But, um, Impact fans, Montreal fans in general don't necessarily uh, aspire to be spoilers in the same way that Toronto fans sometimes do. So, we'll see. Yep. And moving on, Dwayne, it's not fun to play Kansas City, isn't it? Yeah, but you know what? Um, look, they lost, and Jacob Peterson, for God's sakes, had to be the guy that scored the winning goal. There's there are very few uh, former TFC players that are as hated as Jacob Peterson because he was a bit of a dolt when he left town on Twitter. Is why he basically bashed the entire country, um, in you know America. He's like the capital M U R I C A America <laughs> kind of guy in any ways, but. Yeah. Uh, so we're we're not going to go too belabor that too deep, but uh, that's why Jacob's not a very popular guy in Toronto, and he ends up getting a goal on a defensive breakdown. This is Toronto's problem right now is that they have a very youthful, very young back line. Um, you know, Haglin has had a really good rookie year. I think he's played well above expectation. Gibb deserves a lot of credit. Henry has turned his season around from some struggles in the early years. He's always had some good metrics out there that sort of showed that he was he was playing better than than the perceptions illustrated, but. He's gone beyond that. He's made an MLS team of the week a couple weeks ago. He's really continuing those metrics and isn't making the big, big glaring errors that he did before. However, they miss Caldwell badly, and he is out until at least the middle of August at this point. Uh, that's a big loss for them to not have that veteran presence back there. Bradley Orr is a great little utility kind of guy, but he's not going to be able to step in and solidify in the same way that a veteran like Caldwell can. And it was just those mistakes, two mistakes, and otherwise one of the best games they played in a long time. And that's the frustrating thing about it from a Toronto perspective, is that Toronto played very well against the defending champions, and they proved that they can compete. 
um, it made me look forward to the potential of a playoff series between those two teams because I think that they could they match up interestingly and they could play a very interesting playoff series if it if it comes to it. But it did also show that the experience of winning is something that can't be turned around overnight and that it might take a year before Toronto, you know, it might take this year of getting into a playoff spot and losing a tough one in the first round or, or hopefully in the actual round as opposed to the playing game for Toronto to truly become a contender to win a championship to do something special because I, I think that Kansas City really just showed how how they were just a veteran team that knew how to win. No, you're correct about that, Dwayne. And I think it all started for Kansas City. They're great uh Last what, 18 months have been on fire, and all started when they won the U.S. Open Cup. They broke the Seattle streak of four in a row, and they won the U.S. Open Cup. And that was the first trophy they had in the last couple of years. And they, the new core of players, the Kalein, all those great players they have, learned how to win in that run. And that's when we saw Dwyer eventually come back to the team and start playing, as we see now. And Kansas City always seemed to be the best team in the East right now, if not in the league, because out of the West, everybody seems to be going on in a downward trend. But uh Kansas City always looks strong and they're they change keeper because the uh the white Puma retires, Grunerbaum does the job. Bessler, Colin, flawless in defense. It's a it's a great built team. Colin is one of the best players. He's one of the most underrated players in the league. He's a bit of a bit of a goon. Yeah. <laughs> but he doesn't get a lot of red cards. In fact yeah, I don't think he's ever had a red card in MLS. He well, sorry he had one and it was taken away. Uh, which sort of tells you something about how he he plays. So, uh, you know, I think people underestimate how important he is to that team. Um, they are my pick to win the MLS Cup. They have been all year. Uh, what I saw on Saturday reinforced that. Um, I think that they just know how to win at this point, and they absolutely, because I think East is a little weaker in the playoffs, that they will come through a little healthier, and they might even end up winning a Shield again. Um, well, I think they're going to win the Shield, but... Yeah. Uh, I, just, I don't trust Seattle in the playoffs yet. Uh, I think that they're playing on that surface that they do wears them down. And that by the time the end of the season rolls around, they're not playing at the same level that they were before. If Yedlin goes away, that could be another impact on their season. Um, there's just lots of factors that make me question whether Seattle is going to be as good in November as they are in July. And uh, that's why I still think that the MLS Cup final is going to be A, played in Kansas City, and B, Kansas City is going to win it again. Um, that said, you know, it's my hope as a Toronto fan that we do get a first round playoff series or ideally a conference championship, but I think that they might, uh, match up, uh, you know, one four position maybe might be the most likely, um, in, in, a, in the playoffs because I think that that would be something that would absolutely teach TFC how to win moving forward and that would be the most beneficial outcome of the season, realistic beneficial outcome of the season at this point from my perspective. And before Montreal lost to Portland on Sunday, Dwayne, there was a great game at BC Place, Vancouver and Dallas, 2-2 draw, another draw for Vancouver. Yeah, they've been drawing a lot lately, and uh, I don't know what that says. Um, I mean, they're getting results, but they're getting, if you're only drawn out at home, that's not ideal. It's the kind of been the problem with TFC lately. Uh, the West is going to be tough for them to make the playoffs. Uh, you know, Vancouver is a, an interesting team, an athletic team, a team that, uh, that lost their captain this week. I don't know whether that matters or not. Maybe we'll talk about that a little I bit. I think it's a good thing because, uh, he was probably another level they needed him to be. Yeah. Well, Vancouver, but it's, it's leadership gone though. Yeah. Anyway. Vancouver are, is I think one of the most intriguing teams in MLS this year in terms of trying to peg. Because every time you think that they're going to break through and be a top-level team, they, they kind of slip back. And every time you think, okay, well, that's it, they kind of step up. And 
I just, I don't know how to peg them, and I don't think I'm alone in that. Like, do you, where do you, like, they may just be the number 10 or or number nine just be their place, right? Like, they're just flat, dead average in the league, and that's why they never go up too far and never go down too far. I don't know. What's your perception on Vancouver so far? That's a good way to put it. Uh, and it seems like we always see the potential they have, but we never quite see it fulfilled how it could be. We all see those great runs from Maddox or from Mane and the great play from Morales. Uh, and then we see blunders defensively. Sometimes it's questionable calls. Uh, for like the penalty that Dallas have in the beginning of the second half on Sunday that uh, tied the game for Dallas and eventually it stayed that way. But uh, no, it gave the lead to Dallas, eventually Vancouver tied and eventually it, it stayed tied. But Vancouver could have had better luck again. It seems like the small opportunity sometimes to get that win, they don't have it and then they get like a bad luck and they, they get tied or they have to come from behind and they tie it at the end. It seems like it's always hot or cold. It's always drama on each one side or the other. In Major League Soccer, to get results, you need to almost have a low profile. Yeah, I think Vancouver's going to lose the playing game. That, that's honestly where I think their season's going to end, and I'm not trying to be dismissive when I say or that. Or Cold Montreal. Yeah, I, well, or them the year before. I, I just <laughs> think that's their level. Um, I guess we should talk with Jaden Merritt. That was the big news out of Vancouver this week. Uh, he retired, uh, never quite recovered uh, from his knee injury. Uh, playing on that surface probably did not help. Uh, I don't think there's a probably about it. It didn't help. There's just no way he was going to come back uh, and be effective. The question, you know, they made a big deal of it, and I understand. I mean, I remember when Jimmy Brennan retired here in, in Toronto. They made a big deal of it. They put him up in the Wall of Fame and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, Jim Brennan had a, a good year and a half kind of play here in Toronto, but, or two years, I guess he played, but I wonder, like, like, like McDermott, whether Brennan ever had the true effect that we kind of remember him. McDermott, I, I, did he ever, Jada Merritt, I don't know what I'm saying, McDermott, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a player I made up? Sorry guys, sorry Vancouver. Jada Merritt, did Demerit ever really, like I made the joke on Twitter, it was, is he even one of the top ten MLS defenders to play in Canada during time, you know, like, and I'm not being dismissive of his overall career. He obviously overcame a lot. Like, I just don't know. I think that's the whole story. I think he overcame a lot. He was a, a U.S. Mesnash, former U.S. Mesnash player coming back to America to play and with the whole story behind it and then the string of bad injuries he had. Uh, it's it's going to be interesting to see either interviews or if we can get him on the show to talk about it, how if this, he thinks the surface surface had an impact on his career, and maybe if it shortened his career on a little bit. There's no one in Vancouver going to admit that. But. No, I know, but it's, <laughs> sometimes we want to uh, find a solution in Montreal. Maybe there's a correlation between the amount of time a player plays in a league and just the hardness of that specific pitch. Uh, not turf in general, just that one. And maybe you can do something in the future for those players to not have bad knees as Jay does, and if Jay can do something for the one, the future players to don't have to deal with that for this particular stadium, it could be something maybe, you know, if you learn something from the fact that his career was shortened and maybe lengthen the, the career of the future players, it would serve for something. Okay, this is. I'm going to give Demerit some some credit. He's he's no McDermott, but I'll give <laughs> Demerit some credit. Um. You know, look, he he came to a Canadian expansion team 
as a U.S. international, as an allocation player, without even batting an eye. And there's some Americans that won't do that, that would have fought and would have, like, forced a trade to an American team or whatever. And, and I think that that speaks to just his mentality as a player, his willingness to go wherever it took to do whatever he needed to do to get to whatever level, to his highest possible level. Um, he embraced... Like, he's an American, and he's a proud American. I don't want to dismiss that. But he's also just a guy that understood that that sometimes you have to go to other countries to play. And not every American that plays in MLS understands that all the time. And it's, it's talking from a two solitudes perspective, the two solitudes being Canada and U.S., that can be a frustrating thing. We talked about Jacob Peterson and how he whined his way out of Toronto. Well, this is a guy that just embraced Canada and to the point that he married a Canadian, very beautiful Canadian, so I don't think it was that hard on his, hard on him. But at any rate... um. You know, and he's going to stay in Vancouver after the fact. So this is a guy that just embraced his culture wherever it be, whether he was in England or whether he came back here. So I think he deserves a lot of credit for that and for not being, you know, a whiny little allocation player like some of them are. And that makes us crazy up here in Canada how well, maybe I'm sounding like sour grapes, but it it is a legitimate thing that we deal with all the time. And it gets a little old sometimes that, you know, so what? You can't get ESPN deal with it. There's curling on TV sometimes at any rate. Um, you know, the, what I'll say about him, um, that said, is that if you look at his career objectively, and, you know, he had that documentary that they made about him, and they, yep. you know, that was, and I watched it, and it was an interesting little story, and he did have an interesting trip. He went over without a contract. He played for his way up from the conference, basically, as a walk-in, uh, blah, blah, blah. It's very similar to Simeon Jackson, the Canadian story. did the same thing, moved over because he had the passport to do so, got in the conference team, worked his way up to the premiership. They both deserve a lot of credit for that. The difference between... Uh, Demerit and uh, Jackson, of course, is that Demerit also worked his way up to the U.S. national team and to a World Cup because the U.S. made a World Cup. So, a lot, lot to like about that. But his story, you know, his story sometimes got in the way with way with the objective evaluation of where he stood. I think in the last couple of years, and I do think, as you said earlier, from a purely footballing perspective, right now, Jay Demerit. Loss probably might be addition by subtraction to, to Vancouver. They don't need to worry about trying to play him because of his reputation at this point. They can recognize that his career was done and move forward as they needed to do anyway. Absolutely. And hopefully Vancouver will learn how to uh, get that extra goal or stop conceding to finally get those elusive three points. Yes, because the, you know my ultimate dream is that uh, that... Vancouver and Toronto play in the MLS Cup final here at Bebo Field and that the Whitecaps lose by six goals. Oh, uh, oh that'd be fun. At any rate. But. Yeah, you'll hear it forever. Trust me, I still hear from the uh, last couple, a couple of years ago. Yeah. Well, I don't think that's happening this year. I, I, that would be, an all-Canadian MLS Cup final would be spectacular because it would, you'd have to watch Don Garber and the rest of the Americans twist themselves into a, into a pretzel and trying to like, on you ESPN. Know, be excited about it and like ESPN gritting their teeth at the broadcast. It would just be hilarious. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. just seeing the crying Don give the trophy out to one of those two. It'd be great. It'd be great. And, uh, yeah. That would be my favorite moment in sports history. And I know our American listeners think we're being cliches right now, but I'm fully embracing that because, you know, you don't have to deal with it. <laughs> right. uh, all right, moving on. Um, Kevin, uh, that's going to be it for today. Uh, Fury and FC Edmonton both struggled this week as well. Uh, we'll try and get a, try and get an FC Edmonton guest on in the next couple weeks to, to break down their season a little bit more. Um, maybe we'll ask Stephen back on again, Stephen Sandor. Uh, the Fury, uh, unfortunately, haven't been able to take advantage of the excitement around that new stadium yet and, uh, you know, really had it handed to them this weekend on our NASL side. So, uh, 
Unless you have anything else to say, Kevin? Everybody in Canada, get ready. The U20 starts very soon. Get your tickets or uh, get ready. Yep, and we'll absolutely be covering that full on. The camp just opened here in Toronto this week. Until that time, Kevin, I'll let you say goodbye. Have a great soccer. Good things might come to those who wait, but not for those who wait too late. We gotta go for all we know. Just the two of us. We can make it if